from Idaho to Florida, Missouri to Maine, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, Russia has formally annexed disputed territory in the Ukraine. NATO nations, including the United States and the United Kingdom, are ratcheting up economic sanctions. Christine McDaniel from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University is here with details. If Republicans take control of Congress, will Democrats use the lame duck session to push through a radical agenda? Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. The Supreme Court of the United States will hear a case involving free speech and social media platforms. But as Eric Bame of Reason Magazine learns from Chris Riley at the R Street Institute, the issue rightfully belongs before Congress. And it has been a banner year for state-level tax reform, but not all reform is created equal. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council has an American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Russia has formally annexed disputed territory seized during its invasion of neighboring Ukraine. In response, the United Kingdom, among other countries, instituted additional economic sanctions. Here to talk about these developments is Christine McDaniel. She is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Christine, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Christine, Russia has been attempting to annex portions of eastern Ukraine. They officially, from their point of view, have done so. Talk a little bit, if you will, about what it is they're attempting to achieve in the process, which, of course, is highly disputed by the United States and other countries. These sham referendums, and they're called sham referendums because there literally have been reports of people being forced to vote at gunpoint, where Russian officials went down into these parts of Ukraine and forced people to vote by gunpoint on whether or not to be part of Russia. So it's really hard to believe any of these, quote, election results, these referendum results. But now Putin has taken these sham referendum results and he is, well, he's expected to participate in a ceremony where he formally accepts these these four occupied regions of Ukraine into Russia. And then the next step is Russia's parliament is expected to rubber stamp that move. And then that kicks off a whole bunch of things like, you know, there's a distribution of Russian passports and these people get Russian currency and, and Putin-backed politicians will come in. But this is all taking place as the fighting is still going on. And so that's why the rest of the world is sort of just watching this with their mouths agape because there's fighting going on. And yet it's like um, your neighbor down the street, that's a big bully and taking over your neighbor's house saying then that he owns it. And then anybody who's going to, who wants to come into that house, basically going to shoot them at gunpoint, right? Or, or um, use, use major force. So that's how you can kind of think about this, but it's also a move that shows Putin is, he's not backing down. In fact, it's, it's quite an escalation and it, in many ways, or the um, military experts are saying that this turns the war into a different phase. And and now, you know, Putin can say he's he's this is more of a defensive war, right? Because now Russia will be quote unquote, you know, defending Russian territory. But the West will never has has indicated they'll never recognize these territories as as Russian territory. 
so it's not really clear. If anything, it just looks like it, the war is going to continue. That being the case, and there being an escalation, we have had a response from the United Kingdom. And of course, you're going to have NATO having to weigh in here. The United Kingdom ratcheting up sanctions. What type of steps have they taken? Recently, after the sham referendum, they announced over 90 sanctions in response to the, the sham referendums. They're saying it was a clear violation of international law, including the United Nations Charter. And this will just be on top of all the other sanctions that the UK and, uh, and, and the US and other allied countries have on, on Russia. And so they have not only now these additional sanctions, but they're also, of course, uh, in terms of the Russian economy, they're losing literally hundreds of thousands of, of people, many of whom are uh, working age males who um, are fleeing the country, trying to flee the, this new draft that Putin has, has mobilized. So overall, for the Russian economy, they were already facing sanctions. Now they're facing more sanctions from the UK. And meanwhile, they're losing hundreds of thousands of working-age people uh, as they're trying to flee the country. As these sanctions take place, we are seeing, however, that Russia continues to export oil to European and other nations, and their revenue from oil continues to go up. What impact is that having on the war effort? Is it helping to finance it? Oh, definitely. Russia is pulling in over $300 billion uh, this year just from oil and gas exports alone. Of course, higher energy prices have been you know, driving those bigger, um, bigger, bigger revenues. In fact, Russia is making more money on their energy exports this year, 38% more this year than last year. And of course, part of, at least part of that, those revenues are going straight into funding the uh, war efforts in Ukraine. So, but the way to think about this is the economy is ultimately output is, you know, what you can produce, right? And so they've got, of course, they have energy that they can dig out of the ground and sell. And they're doing that. They're selling it for a mint right now. But in terms of looking ahead, they're losing access to global markets. They're losing their connections to key markets in terms of both their exports and imports, right? They can't export the goods and services that they used to, and they can't import the goods and services that that they used to. And a lot of Russian manufacturers need access to the global marketplace, not only to sell their goods, but but also just to buy key high advanced, high-end advanced manufacturing equipment to complete the manufacturing process. And so, you know, there have been reports where the Russian aircraft fleet are, you know, they've either had to stop or they've had to cannibalize existing aircraft just to service their their existing fleet. And then their auto production has taken a big hit as well. They're not able to produce uh, automobiles like they used to because they don't have access to the key inputs that they need. So all this is taking place now and having an immediate impact on their economy. But going forward, Christine, losing a substantial part of your working age population not only to folks who are fleeing the country, but regrettably soldiers uh, who are killed on the battlefield, and those numbers are mounting as well, and all these sanctions, is this going to have an impact on the Russian economy, on the Russian people for years, if not decades, yet to come? 
Yes, the Russian, well, the Russian population and the workforce has been declining steadily over over quite uh, quite some time now, uh, and with these reports of about three hundred thousand people fleeing the country, of course, you know that is further further draw drag on the labor force. Now, keep in mind the well, the reported size of the labor force is seventy five million, so there's that. But the people who are leaving, those are the people with the higher higher education. We have been talking with Christine McDaniel. She is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And Christine, uh, tell us a bit about Mercatus. Also, you've written about this and many other topics. Where can folks go to read those writings? Mercatus? Well, Mercatus is Latin for market, so mercatus.org. And they um, all of our work is there. Mercatus is at George Mason University, and we are a free market center, free market research institute and think tank. And your website? Website is www.mercatus.org. Christine McDaniel of the Mercatus Center. Christine, thank you so much for being with us again. Appreciate it. Thank you, Loman. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. He does keep an eye on everything political as well as legislative in the nation's capital. Welcome back, Scott. Great to be back, Loman. Thanks for having me. As we approach this midterm election, there is the very real possibility, Scott, that Republicans will take control of at least the lower house, the House of Representatives of Congress, perhaps also the Senate. We're going to talk more about those races next week. But on the likelihood that Republicans get at least partial control, what sort of chicanery can the Democrats engage in between Election Day and the end of the congressional session later this year? Well, you know, that's a great question. And when you think about the Democrats, the Democrats don't just have a three-month or or nine-month or two-year or four-year agenda. They've really got a 50-year plan to radicalize America. And, And I think we're in the middle of that right now. When you look at the passage and codification of Obamacare, socializing medicine and healthcare in America, you look at even the Inflation Reduction Act that Joe Biden ushered through Congress earlier this summer. That's effectively the Green New Deal with all the green energy provisions and corporate cronyism that's tucked in there for the environmentalists. And then I think Democrats have also pretty much signaled their willingness uh, when they have the votes to pack the Supreme Court of the United States. And so as we know that the Democrats have all these big ticket items on their docket, for their 50-year plan. We also know that there could be what's known as a lame duck session of Congress in November and December following the November 8th election. And so just to kind of let the listeners know what a lame duck is in case people don't really understand, it's when you have a president in power and the elections shift control of the House of Representatives or the United States Senate from his party to the minority party, the Republican Party, obtaining a new majority. And you basically have these members of Congress that currently hold those majorities, and they're known as lame ducks because they're either retiring or they lost their election. And so in December, we know that we're going to be having many, many items that are expiring or are political opportunities for the Democrats to advance even more of their agenda. And when I think about the lame duck session, I'm looking, obviously, at the December 16th expiration of the federal funding bill, the continuing resolution that 
could provide for an omnibus appropriations. We also know that Congress never passed the National Defense Authorization Act in 2022. So that's something that a lot of people have talked about using as the vehicle to put everything else on because they know that Republicans want to support the military industrial complex and our national defense. And then you've obviously got this uh, political dilemma related to funding for Hurricane Ian that has been devastating Florida and uh, other parts of Southeast America. But the good news about the response to Hurricane Ian is there is no immediate emergency when it comes to federal funding. There's actually about $25 billion already in what's known as the Disaster Relief Fund, and state and local officials can work with FEMA to immediately access those funds to deal with any emergencies that are ongoing in devastated areas following the hurricane's wrath. Democrats also want to completely change the way that that we count presidential elections. So they've got this bill called the Electoral Count Act that they're trying to push through along with lame representatives like Liz Cheney and Adam Kensinger. Then we've had this this, uh, big debate really since about July over marriage equality in Congress. They were unable to have the votes of that prior to the election because they knew that some Democrats would be vulnerable if they voted for gay marriage. So uh, that's another issue that the Democrats are looking to usher through in the lame duck session. Then you've got maybe a bipartisan bill related to tax extenders. This is generally one of those ways that lawmakers dole out favors to K Street, the lobbyists, the influencers on public policy uh, that are backed by really corporate cronyism, in my view. So the Democrats have the child tax credit that's hanging out there that would expire from the Biden stimulus plan earlier in 2021. And Republicans also want to change the way that that we can provide for tax benefits to businesses that are looking to depreciate assets in order to grow their business. So there could be a bipartisan opportunity there. And then you've got, obviously, the COVID and monkeypox money that always is a political wedge for the Democrats that say Republicans don't care about how sick people are going to get in the winter. Well, you know, Loman, I actually care more about whether or not people are able to heat their homes in Northeast United States of America and states like New Hampshire, where home heating costs are skyrocketing due to inflation. And, you know, you've got other members like Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia. He's still interested in passing this permitting legislation in order to provide for more energy exploration within the United States. I honestly think that that's something that they could do when we have a bipartisan Congress, either with House Republicans or Senate Democrats or with Senate Republicans, if we went back to the Senate majority, there's no real urgency to handle that issue in December. We know that inflation is a real problem. We know that it's been largely self-inflicted by the energy policies from the Biden administration. So I think that that's another one of those issues that can wait a little bit longer. And some uh, folks are already also talking about the debt limit being something that the Republicans would be interested in handling in the lame duck prior to when they get control so that they don't actually have to take that tough vote in March or May or so of 2023. We have been talking with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. Scott, tell us a bit about the club. Sure. So the Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. We have over 525,000 members from all 50 states. If anybody wants to check us out, our website is clubforgrowth.org, and you can learn more about all those core issues related to economic freedom and liberty that we care about. 
Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you for being here. Thank you. Section 230 is a controversial law protecting social media platforms from certain legal proceedings. Now the Supreme Court will hear a case involving the law. To learn more, Eric Bame of Reason Magazine talks with Chris Riley of the R Street Institute. Congress has been debating for years whether there need to be changes made to the law that governs liability for online content. That law, Section 230, is a favorite of both lawmakers on left and right to call for changes. But now the Supreme Court might beat Congress to the punch. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. My guest today is Chris Riley. He is the Senior Fellow of Internet Governance at the R Street Institute. Uh, and I think that means you get to set all the rules for what goes online, right, Chris? Thanks for taking some time with us. Well, it means I have to be aware of all of them and be able to say which ones are good and bad at the very least. But yeah, if only, if only, right? Yeah, if only. Uh, It looks like the Supreme Court may have something to say about what can go on the Internet. The court has agreed to take up these uh, two cases connected to Section 230. Now, you've written extensively about Section 230 and about the, the kind of bipartisan misunderstandings here. So before we get into the Supreme Court cases, I wonder if we can just sort of quickly look at that, like both Democrats and Republicans have uh, made a case against Section 230 recently have kind of started building the case for, for changing it or, or maybe just revoking it entirely. But they have different complaints, even though there's some similarities there. Yeah. And I would I would also argue they're, they're both wrong. <laughs> so Section 230 is a really interesting piece of the law. It was written to encourage companies to moderate content online and to do so without fear that any gaps in their content moderation would result in them being sued or held liable for the actions of their users. So it's a good Samaritan provision in a very real sense. It's being criticized by both the left and the right because they're trying to get the companies to do things differently. The left wants companies to moderate more content that they view as creating harm online, and in some cases, honestly, is creating harm online. The right wants them to be a sort of more neutral and not be so aggressive in moderating content that could lead to harm but reflects a particular partisan viewpoint and view of the world. And a lot of this is about former President Trump, as you might imagine, and, and sort of how he was handled in online platforms. It's really quite the mess. And the only thing the parties can agree on is that they don't like big tech right now. Yeah, both sides want to change it the way they want and not the way the other side wants. We've seen this in the news. In in particular, Texas and Florida have passed laws that uh, sort of make an attempt at uh, carving away some parts of Section 230. But neither of those laws are involved in in these cases that are going to the Supreme Court. Instead, weirdly, because I haven't even thought about this group in years now, but ISIS is involved, the, the terrorist organization from the Middle East. Yeah, it's a really weird situation. Everyone sort of knew the Supreme Court would be taking up Section 230 at some point because that's the way that the law and the politics have been evolving. But we kind of all thought the first bite at the apple would be the Texas and Florida laws, which, as you say, were meant to to try to force companies to do certain things, despite the obvious constitutionality problems of asking them to engage in certain kinds of content moderation activity. Instead, we have a case that's based on the Anti-Terrorism Act and a particular incident where ISIS engaged in a terrorist attack in a, in a bistro in Paris in 2015. That's the Gonzalez case of the Gonzalez and Tamna case, which has some similar elements to it too, but Gonzalez is getting more of the coverage. So what's going on here? Section 230 doesn't relate to criminal law at all. If a tech company is liable for engaging in or supporting some criminal behavior, Section 230 is meaningless. But the Anti-Terrorism Act is not a criminal law. It's a law that says people who are harmed 
as a result of terrorist activity can sue to get damages from somebody who they think is liable for it. So the question is, first of all, does Section 230 say it doesn't matter if ISIS occasionally uses YouTube videos? Of course, Google is going to try to shut ISIS down every chance they get. But if Google did not respond quickly enough and ISIS was able to use some YouTube videos, however temporarily available, to recruit, and that in some way is found to have contributed to someone being harmed by a terrorist attack, can Google be held liable or does Section 230 protect it? It's really weird that this is going to the Supreme Court, first of all. Everybody wants the Supreme Court to weigh in and provide its opinion, but the Supreme Court's not supposed to just come out with opinions. It's supposed to wait for something called a circuit split, where two of the different appellate courts below it have come to different interpretations of the law. Then, of course, it's a natural reaction to the Supreme Court to say, no, this is the law of the land and how we interpret this. There's no circuit split here. There's no reason why this particular question needs to be revisited or needs to be asked unless the Supreme Court is just deciding it's going to use this opinion, this opportunity, to opine on how it views the law should be. We're talking with Chris Riley. He's the Senior Fellow of Internet Governance at the R Street Institute, talking about the two Supreme Court cases that will take a look at Section 230. And, and Chris, as you were just saying, there's really not any ambiguous question of law here. So it's, it's a little bit strange that this whole issue is going in front of the Supreme Court, because it seems to me like this is really something, as much disagreement as there might be in Congress, this is really something that, that ultimately Congress, if there's going to be a change to Section 230, they're the ones who have to do it. Yeah, and, and frankly, I don't think there's any reason to make any change to Section 230. It's a perfectly good functional piece of the law. It's a complicated balance right now. Right? I think there's plenty of different perspectives from different reasons, as we discussed, for why people would like to see the Internet run a little bit differently. But this is speech we're talking about. It's a complex balance. There are lots of different perspectives. How do we create the right forum for conversation about what to do to make the Internet healthier? We need to bring the ACLU in. We need to bring companies in. We need to bring lots of different organizations and views in here to manage this very delicate balance correctly. Um, I don't think a congressional process on this right now is going to reflect those views. And I really don't think a Supreme Court case is well set up to reflect the complex different stakeholders' perspectives that we need to talk about the delicate, delicate balance of speech and moderation online in any context. And, and gosh, going into it from the perspective of terrorism, you have to believe that there are certain people in the Supreme Court that just want to make law through this decision. And that's just not how our government is supposed to be. Yeah, it seems like it sets up the possibility for the court to legislate from the bench, which, of course, never the way it's supposed to work. And uh, we will have much more, I think, to talk about on these cases as they go forward. The Supreme Court has only just granted cert to them, which means that's really the beginning of this process. So we will revisit this. And when we do, Chris, we will have you back on the show. Thanks for taking some time with us today. I'd love to join. Thank you for having me. And again, that is Chris Riley. He is the Senior Fellow of Internet Governance at the R Street Institute. You can check out his work online at rstreet.org. They do fine work on a variety of topics as well. Check out our coverage of Section 230 in the Supreme Court at Reason.com. And for Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bame. You can catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Many states are reforming their tax structures. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council talks about what principles make sound tax reform policy on this American Radio Journal commentary. Last year was a historic year for successful tax reform efforts across the states. In the first three quarters of 2022, accelerated this trend of substantial tax reform getting across the finish line. Within a six-month period earlier in 2022, incredibly five states have made the historic switch to a flat personal income tax from a progressive income tax, 
reigniting the great Steve Forbes' flat tax revolution at the state level and providing significant tax relief for hardworking taxpayers. With all the amazing free market tax reform that's happened recently across the states, it's important to keep in mind that not all tax cuts are created equal. So what are the best practices for good tax policy to ensure that policymakers and states are getting the biggest bang for the proverbial buck? Well, at my organization, the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC for short, we designed such a guide, which we'll discuss today. This statement of principles that we will discuss has proven to withstand the test of time as lawmakers evaluate the many ways they could cut taxes. We believe the proper function of taxation is to raise the money for core functions of government, not to direct the behavior of citizens or close budget gaps created by overspending problems. This is true regardless of whether government is big or small, and this is true for lawmakers at all levels of government. Taxation will always impose some level of economic burden on performance across the country and certainly on hardworking taxpayers. But that harm can be minimized if policymakers resist the temptation to use the tax code for social engineering, class warfare, and other extraneous purposes. The goal of sound tax policy should be to raise that revenue for the core functions of government in a way that minimizes distortions and grow the overall economy and facilitate commerce across the board. There are seven ALEC guiding principles for good tax policy. Simplicity transparency, neutrality, equity and fairness, complementary, competitiveness, and reliability. Simplicity is really straightforward. The tax code should be easy for the average citizen to understand. It should minimize the cost of complying with tax laws. Tax complexity adds cost to the taxpayer but does not increase public revenue. For governments, the tax system should be easy to administer and should help promote efficient, low-cost administration. Transparency requires tax systems to be accountable to their citizens. Taxes and tax policy should be visible and not hidden from taxpayers. Changes in tax policy should be highly publicized and open to public debate. The tax system needs to be economically neutral. Raising needed revenue for core functions of government while not controlling the lives of citizens or micromanaging the economy. An effective tax system should be broad-based, utilize a low overall tax rate with few loopholes, and avoid multiple layers of taxation. Equity and fairness in a tax system is ensured by the government not using it to pick winners and losers in society or unfairly shift the tax burden onto one class of citizens. The tax system should not be used to punish success or to soak the so-called rich, engage in discriminatory or multiple taxation, nor should it be used to bestow special favors on any particular group of taxpayers. The tax code should be complementary, helping to maintain a healthy relationship between state and local governments in this system of federalism that we have. A low tax burden can lead to greater economic competitiveness and be a really important tool for state's private sector economic development by retaining and attracting productive business activity as well as employees. A high-quality revenue system will be responsive to competition from other states, as our annual publication, Rich States, Poor States, measures the economic competitiveness of the states, it can be extremely helpful as a guide to see how widely different tax systems across the states are affecting their levels of economic prosperity. A 
high-quality tax system is reliable, providing stable and certainty in taxation and revenue flows. Once again, states are in the midst of one of the most aggressive tax-cutting climates in recent memory, but not all tax cuts provide the same level of economic growth. Focusing on the principles of sound tax policy and learning the important lessons from our 50 state case studies over the years should be ample evidence for policymakers of all stripes to move their respective states forward. If not, states certainly run the risk of falling behind simply by standing still in this environment. For more information, you can visit alec.org and richstatespoorstates.org. For American Radio Journal, I'm Jonathan Williams. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including KFRH-FM and KBET-AM in Las Vegas, Nevada, KRCK-FM in Palm Springs, California, along with KREV-FM in San Francisco, California. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program, please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.